Good morning, everyone. Good morning, saints in India. Good evening, saints in India. All right. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we come before you through your Son as your Holy Spirit prays with us, knowing that you have ordained that we should be praying these things to you now, and you who search the mind of God. Pray for us in in accordance with the will of God. Lord, we pray that you would empower this congregation as we go through the often fiery trials the suffering that is inherent in the Christian life. We pray that you would give us power to be meek enough and to look to you so that we might embrace our crosses and not reject them. Lord, you are good, and you alone are good. Even as you told the rich young ruler, there is no one good but God alone. We pray that you would speak to us today that you are good, especially in our suffering. We pray that the reality that you have ordained that all things should work together, that, that you should work all things together for good for those who love the Lord and have been called according to your purpose, we pray that that reality would settle doubts, hopelessness, fears, despair, and, and would transform us from primarily self-centered creatures to Christ-centered creatures. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text this morning is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we'll start in verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The mic's a little hot if we could take it down a bit. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Last week, we said that sonship includes daughterhood in this passage. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. 
Can you imagine that a day will come and is coming soon when these bodies, these bodies of flesh, these bodies in which the sinful flesh is alive and well will be redeemed for the glory of God? No more sin, no more failure, no more suffering, nothing but eternity in the presence of Almighty God, who by his power is able and will wipe every tear from our eyes. This day is coming soon. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The scripture says that that through many um, tribulations and sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. There, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God except not only through the cross of Christ, but by taking up our own cross. And taking up our own cross is not just the sacrifice of self and the, the empowerment to resist and overcome sin and find victory in Christ. It's also the suffering that we endure that's, that's not our fault. It's the suffering that is inherent in a world where, where many are one. In a, in a family where many are together, there is often great conflict. And sometimes that conflict is within the church of God. And Jesus said uh, through the apostle Peter that anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or through, uh, in Paul's letter to Timothy rather. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be recognized as the children of God, applauded, affirmed in their identity, and given half of the reward here and half of their reward later. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said that, Greg sings in the back, every promise in the book is mine. This is, this is a principle that is in operation in the lives of every Christian. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It was on the cross that Christ gave up all that he deserved and all that rightfully belonged to him. And he took on your sins and mine. He took on the weight of the wrath of God due mankind. And all of those who Christ, who the Father and the Son and the Spirit in their eternal counsel passed, eternal past, in their eternal counsels before the world began, had elected or chosen or identified for sonship, for daughterhood. All of these he predestined 
to be joined with him, not just through his cross, but taking up our own crosses. And that, Christian, is the normal Christian life. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, it's basically every time you turn the page, the main character, Christian, who is every Christian, representative of every Christian, faces a new trial, a new trap, a new snare, a new slippery slope, a new assault, distraction, or deception. And that is specifically what Christ has called us. And when we walk this Christian road with one another, with him, looking to him who endured the cross, despising its shame, we don't rejoice in we don't rejoice in shame, but we rejoice during and in our sufferings because of the hope of reconciliation being ratified. We, we rejoice in the hope of sonship, of adoption being ratified and consummated on the other side of the cross on that glorious day. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Imagine what was going through Christ's mind when bearing the shame and the weight of the wrath of God on every one of the elect. Christ looked ahead with joy, with joy, he endured the cross for that which was before him. Having the family of God be fully purchased, sanctified, and redeemed, seated with him at that table on that day, passing the cup, sharing the, the free gift of the water of life, and, and drinking wine at the table of God, breaking bread together, being with the Lamb of God in glory, free from trial on the other side of the cross. That is the hope of every Christian, and every Christian must go through the cross to get there. There is no other way. Matthew 16:24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That reminds us earlier of the verses in Romans chapter 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Revelation chapter 1 verse 9. John writes to the church, He himself who has endured great affliction being in exile, away from the family of God, away from his natural family, away from, indeed, everyone. In a solitary confinement, although he was probably under guard, he writes from the island of Patmos, 
I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. What is tribulation? Tribulation is like being scrubbed on a washboard. You know what a washboard is before we had washing machines? It'd be a, maybe a metal or a wooden or a glass board with, with these ridges on it. And you'd, you'd hold that down in your, your water bucket, your laundry bucket, and you'd put your laundry in and you'd put your soap in and you would grip your laundry and you'd scrub it up and down on the washboard, agitating it, uh, scouring it. Um, you're the laundry, Christian. That's what tribulation is. But Jesus himself has condescended from heaven and has gone before us through the laundry so that we might be cleansed, washed, and sanctified by his blood. It's not going through the suffering that makes us righteous. There is a false doctrine that says, when I suffer, I'm participating in paying for my sins. And that's not true. Christ already did it, and it's done. But we still have to go through the tribulation. I, John, John writes, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. Because through many trials and tribulations, you will enter the kingdom of God your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Because if you're in Jesus, you know what it means to wait. Waiting is what we do. The Christian life is part conquering, part seeing, part the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, and part waiting, and part groaning, and part tribulation. And they go hand in hand. And it is in these things that we participate, not just in the life and the power, but in the death and in the imminent, unstoppable resurrection of Jesus Christ, which works its way out through the land, through the church of God, so that every one of our bodies will be raised immortal like his glorious body, free from sin and free from this suffering in which we live. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was imprisoned for testifying to Jesus. And he writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and behind me I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. And there, uh, if we read on, we would see that Christ himself is speaking. And by saying Christ's voice is like a trumpet, like first he says it's loud, then he says it's like a trumpet, I want you to imagine a trumpet behind you. Trumpets are loud. Like, you kind of don't want your kid, on one hand, to grow up learning certain instruments, like maybe the drums or the trumpet, because you've got to listen to it until they get really good. And, of course, we want our kids to play these instruments. But there's a suffering that every parent whose kid is a drummer, unless you have electronic drums with a headphone or whatnot, I, imagine a trumpet blaring behind you. It's loud. 
in saying it's like a trumpet, he's also quoting several places in the Old Testament that say the voice of God is like a wind or a trumpet. Do you remember on Sinai, the sound of the trumpet, and the people couldn't bear the voice of him who spoke. Now here on Patmos, John, in suffering, in the kingdom, in patient endurance, and there was much he had already endured besides his imprisonment and exile. It was in these things that he heard the voice of Jesus, and when he writes his voice was like a trumpet, what he means is basically two things. One, Jesus' voice is God's voice, quoting the Old Testament. And two, Jesus' voice is the sound that drowns out all other sounds and every other voice. When Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, it is in suffering that we hear the voice of God. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Many of us have been devoured by doubt. Resist him, firm in your faith. Firm is like when you have shoes with cleats on them, right? The Roman soldiers would wear these cleats in battle. So that when enemy soldiers pushed on them, their, their shoes were embedded in the ground and they didn't get pushed backwards. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone when you suffer. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. Let's go back to verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Don't, don't you guys know? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or grow weary. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Stretch your sanctified imagination to understand that God in his wisdom is able to do things even out of suffering that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Our God is able to bring out of ashes new growth, good things, and fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness, and even to build out of ruin, even out of the ruin of our lives. And the wrecks that have been made of our lives or that we have been made out of our lives, one holy temple. For we are living stones. We don't put ourselves together. 
God is the builder of this house. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They who wait for the Lord. If you've read the Psalms, and I hope reading the Psalms is a habit for you. It should be. Reading the Psalms should be a habit in your daily life throughout your whole life. If you've read the Psalms and if you've fellowshiped with David who went before us, you've fellowshiped with the Lord in your sufferings. The Psalms are more about suffering than anything else. But with one exception, every Psalm that contains suffering starts or ends or starts and ends or is filled with praise. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And we know that the Christian life is waiting and is crucifixion. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Amen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4.17. You know the suffering that Paul endured, even as Jesus said, I will show him the things he must suffer for my name. You know what he went through, the beatings, the abandonment, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, lost at sea where day seemed like night. Can you feel that? Wounded, without clothing, without food, without water, without friends, chased and hounded from city to city. Have you ever been hounded? with a thorn in his flesh that he prayed, God, take it away three times. And God spoke to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in whose weakness? In weakness. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He did not lose heart, though his outward self was indeed wasting away. His inner being was being renewed day by day in the presence of God. And when he weighed the joy that was set before him with the cross that he was, the crosses that he was suffering day by day, he put it on a balance like, a, like an old-fashioned seesaw for weighing things. And the suffering went here, and the glory went here, and immediately the scales tipped under the weight of glory that was being prepared for him. Don't you know, saints, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, that I will take you to be where I am. Amen. 
Romans 8, 26 or 25. If we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Why is the Spirit groaning? We know that all creation is groaning. If you've ever even turned on the news, if you've ever read the paper, if you've read pretty much any classic novel, if you've, if you've ever looked outside your front door or inside your own home, you've seen groaning. All creation is groaning. We ourselves are groaning. There's the laboring before the birth of the glorified people of God. We are, we are being incubated and we are suffering. We are enduring pains like the pains of labor, like the pains of childbirth. This is true. Why is the spirit groaning? You don't groan for somebody unless you are deeply moved with pity for their suffering. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit is groaning in prayer over you, and the Father is listening. When you groan for somebody, you feel their pain. Why does God, who has never done anything wrong, subject himself to pain? Doubt wants to rise up in you and say, I didn't deserve this. Doubt wants to rise up in you and say, God could have stopped this. Doubt wants to rise up in you. Accusation wants to rise up in you and say, God, why didn't you rescue me? Wasn't your hand long enough to reach me? Doubt wants to say, where are you, God? Where were you when I needed you? Set that down for a minute. Lay it aside and come over here and consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. When was it right or fitting for God, for God, for God to have to groan? When did God do anything wrong that made him deserve to be pierced with a spear or to, be, to begin his earthly life naked and to end his earthly life naked? We look at Adam and Eve in the garden, we look at the shame and the sin and the fall and the nakedness and we say, why did you let that happen? Set that down for a second. Lift your gaze to heaven and consider the agony and the suffering of Christ. Consider simply the, the I think, anguish of being incarnated. 
That would have been tremendously painful, I believe. I don't know where it says that in the scripture, but I can't imagine. I mean, if you, if you squeeze into clothes that are too tight, it's uncomfortable. If you, if, you know, it rains and your clothes are wet, it's uncomfortable. Jonathan Maddox and I rode, we tried to ride our bikes to Cincinnati last night, but, um, but my foot got stuck in his spokes and broke his spokes, and, or bent his spokes and bent the rim of his wheel, which we tried to fix and we limped on. And then partway to Cincinnati, my, uh, um, the trailer I was towing Daniel in, the, the attachment point snapped, so it was hanging by the two safety straps. So we limped back home, and it rained. It rained on the way there, and it rained on the way back, and it rained during the night, and we had a blast. But let me tell you, when you're putting on wet socks in the morning, um, there's something that doesn't feel right about it. Can you imagine being squeezed into human skin? God, God who fills the whole universe, Christ, who fills the whole universe, Colossians 1, being squeezed into a human baby's body without dignity, any dignity, in a cold, pitiful, you know, in the, the there's one song, in the squalor of a borrowed stable. No dignity. Have you ever felt no dignity? Christ has too. And I might say, well, maybe I've gone, I have gone through things that I, I feel uh, I didn't deserve. I have gone through things that I did deserve. Set all these things aside. Set yourself aside and take up this. Christ deserved none of it, ever. Not one tear, not one groan, not one hair of his head hair of his beard being pulled out, not one of the punches in the face, not one of the blows he received, not one of the mocking jeers and jabs. Christ did not deserve the insults of any of the atheists and pagans anywhere in the world who mock him and take the Lord's name in vain every day. Christ deserved none of that. And if he didn't deserve that, and he did that for me, I can believe in, trust in, and hope in him who did that for me, even though I do not understand why I went through suffering, that I can't understand how that could have happened to me when I was a child, when I was weak, when I, was, when I had done no wrong, right? God could have said from heaven, God could have been like an unfeeling parent or an unfeeling boss who spoke down from heaven, follow my law, and if you don't follow my law, it's hell for you. But our God is not that kind of father. Our heavenly father condescended in every possible meaningful way, and he lived it, and he bore it, and there was no way in which we have been tempted that he was not tempted. And he did it for you. I can follow him. I can follow him through whatever valley of the shadow of death he leadeth me. Because I know that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Saints, this is what Romans 8 says. Follow him.
The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, this is the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you see how the, what's deep in the heart of Christ is to be united with you as family. There was nothing more that he desired than to be glorified by condescending, suffering, being speared, being nailed, being struck, having his beard pulled out, mocked through all these centuries to have the prize for which he died, us, one holy people. Don't be discouraged when you read Romans 8.28 and says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And don't think to yourself, I don't love God very much. My love is pitiful. He knows. It is not you who chose him. John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. When you read Romans 8.28 and you see that it starts out, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and you are tempted to, to to put yourself down and think, I'm not even sure if I do love God. I certainly don't love him in any kind of way that he is worthy or where I could take my love for him and offer it to him at the end of the day as a, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to him in such a way that he could be pleased, it is right that we should feel that way about ourselves because our love is often small. But for those for whom God foreknew, the weight of this verse is on God's foreknowledge, on God's predestination of you. You did not choose me, he says, but I chose you. That's the weight of this verse. We don't love him because we're really loving people. We love him because he first loved us. In the eternal reality, God loves us first. It's an eternal principle. God loves us first. In eternity past, God loved us first. When time began, our names had already, your names had already been written in the Lamb's book of life. If your sanctification is not what it ought to be, of course it's not what it ought to be. If your love for God is not what it ought to be, of course it's not what it ought to be. Our love for God starts by looking at his love for us. Our sanctification comes from the hope 
of being with him who is holy. That motivates us. That makes love for him grow in our hearts. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do not be conformed to this world any longer. What is being conformed? It's being squished into a mold. Don't be squished into the world's mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in this gospel, in these scriptures, because it is through suffering in the presence of God with one another, using the scriptures to go through it, that we are renewed in the image of our creator day by day. Why? Why is he doing this? So that he can have you, not as his slave, not as his lowly possession or belonging, but so that whether in life or in death, you can belong, body and soul, to Jesus, who is faithful to bring it to pass, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He justified us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why is that in past tense? I don't feel very glorified when I fail. It's in past tense because to us, I look at the, the timeline of history and I look at when I was born and I imagine one day I'll die and I think about those who will come after me and my children and my children's children and how I can hopefully be a blessing to them. And I think about those who came before me and the faith they had and how whether they were being crucified upside down, Peter, or sawed in two or, or hidden away in caves or gone hungry or naked, they remain faithful and their faith strengthens my faith. I think back to the beginning. I think somehow before that, my name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then beyond that, it's just, you can't put any marks on the line because the line infinitely continues. It's eternity. And eventually, it'll get out to eternity if you go far enough. And it'll just continue. Just, just glory. There's nothing out there but glory. Amen. There's nothing out there but eternal fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God, His saints. There's nothing out there but that. There's nothing but, but songs, new songs, unfolding as eternal time goes on to His glory, to the praise of His glory. And to me, that's what it looks like. That's what the timeline looks like. But to God, who is outside and above time, it is finished. It was sealed just like we were sealed before I entered into the baptism of suffering, before I took up my first daily cross. To him, the glorification is a done deal. Can you have faith in his perspective for you? 
He's declared it. And his word is law. His word is metaphysical truth. When he speaks, it is. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, since God is for us, who can be against us? Can Satan? No, there's no condemnation. The accuser of the brethren has been hurled down forever. Can I be against myself? No, before anything was done, whether good or evil, God chose his saints. Can you be against me? You can try. Can the world be against me? It can give me its best shot, but God can raise from the dead that which has been crucified. Resurrection is the name of the game in the Christian life. We live out of his resurrection day by day with the hope of the ultimate and final resurrection. He who did not spare his own son, just think about that for like two seconds. He who did not spare his own son. I think I would spare anything else to save my own son. Anything. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, the Father and the Son in full agreement, nobody, Jesus doesn't regret dying for you. Jesus doesn't regret dying for you. You can't make enough mistakes for him to regret dying for you. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, brothers and sisters, we are co-heirs with Christ, and Christ owns everything. And all of this belongs to you in Christ Jesus. You don't become God, but you are joined together with him in glory as the eternally undeserving, eternally rewarded, eternally beloved children of God. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. There's no condemnation. If God is for us, who can be against us? It is God who justifies. Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. I could see if there was this person who had been forgiven of some sins Maybe later they could do some more sins and maybe one of us might give up on him, right? But Christ Jesus bore all the wrath of God. He used it up. There's no wrath left. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. It's already done. Your destiny is resurrection and nothing can stop that trajectory. It is Jesus who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. And if Jesus is praying for me, I think the Father is going to listen. I think I'm going to make it. Can you hear this? Mm-hmm. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall going through the washboard separate you from the love of Christ? 
Does God still love you when you're being, when you're going through the ringer, when you're being squeezed and stretched and pulled and crushed, when you're being persecuted, you are not being abandoned by God. He went through that too. Therefore, you can have hope that since he did not abandon his own son to the grave, that he also will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what you go through, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And we do go through those things. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. They treat us like animals to be killed. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Before we pray to close, I'd like to ask that uh, the, our media reference for the week be put up on the board so everybody can see it. Please uh, copy it down. I want to recommend to you, if you can find it on YouTube, if you type it in as it's written, it should come up. I hope it comes up if you're overseas. Corey Ten Boom, a precious saint. Hey, Josh, can you send me a link? I can send out a trip email. I'll do that. Thanks, Stephen. The Love of God. Classic YWAM teaching. That's Youth with a Mission. This was a teaching uh, Corey Ten Boom gave, and you can see the video on YouTube. It's about an hour long. Um, when you listen to it, try to be doing nothing else. This is worth your time. Let's close in prayer. Righteous Father, there is no fault in you. Please forgive us for accusing you of wrongdoing, which we have done in our ignorance. We pray that you would enlighten us and overpower us with the love of God that we may not doubt. We pray that you would overshadow us with the love of God that your righteousness, your love, your presence would clothe our nakedness. For we are very poor and we are very weak. And we praise you for in your wisdom ordaining that these things should be and bringing out of the evil good, yet doing no wrong in all of it. In fact, you are righteous and holy. You have done all things well. Lord, we give ourselves to you because you have given yourself to us. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Have your way in us. Amen.